Hello, my name is Dr. Caleb Fisher. This presentation is Progressivism and Policy Analysis. And a little subheading here, the promises of progressivism and the consolation of conservatism. The point is to show, yeah, there are some benefits to progressivism, but there's also some limitations. And you might be asking, well, why are we even talking about progressivism? This course is on government regulation. And the reason we are is because government regulation is ultimately the result of public policy. So bureaucrats, legislators, executives make policy based upon the policy analysis process. They define the problem, they generate solutions, they implement solutions. That in turn, in some form or the other, leads to government regulation. Now, obviously, the policy analysis process should be even-handed, objective, and rational. And thus, regulation, you would think, would also be intelligent, appropriate, and efficient. And that's why I had that disclaimer, no way is this video meant to be humorous or satirical. Because we, you and I both know that government regulation often is anything but efficient and practical and realistic. So why is that? Now, to set the foundation, progressivism is this notion that you know, we should get the ex best experts in the room to generate policy solutions, to make recommendations, and solve that problem. Before we get into all those key stipulations of progressivism, let's talk about the worldview of the progressive approach. And I would make the case that much like Marxism, it's kind of coming from a naturalistic solution in perspective insofar as it assumes only secular, only physical, only empirical components to problems and therefore only secular, only empirical, only physical solutions to problems. So much like Marxism would define the problem of poverty as exploitation and the solution would therefore only be redistribution of wealth, progressivism likewise assumes that your best solutions are going to come from physical solutions, um, from government. It's going to not really acknowledge spiritual or holistic solutions, or certainly the causes, the spiritual causes of problems as well. So that being said, let me, let me talk about what we would call the promises of progressivism. First, it's that trained, impartial elites who conduct analysis and let the research drive recommendations are in control of making those, introducing those solutions. So they're, they're supposed to be smart, they're supposed to know their stuff, they're supposed to be experts in their fields, makes sense, and they're supposed to be able to, to make impartial recommendations. That would hopefully in turn lead to holistic, centralized solutions of problems. The reason that centralization is important is that hopefully if you're centralizing, you, you can solve all the problem at once. If you can get, give the people, the decision makers, enough authority to, to, to solve the problem, that, need, that by default requires centralization. And that makes sense on some level. Uh, it also assumes scientific rationalism. In other words, that people are smart. They're coming at it from a scientific approach, not from a knee-jerk uh, approach where they've got their own biases and assumptions that are clouding the approach to policy analysis and therefore regulation. Allegedly, progressivism was all about avoiding superstition, narrow-mindedness, and disorganization. Allegedly. Okay? That's the promise of progressivism. That's what we're hoping is going to happen. But there are some pitfalls that we're going to discuss in the next two slides. First of all, having a degree by your name doesn't mean that you're rational. Rational. I have a degree by my name, and sadly, I'm not always rational. I'm a frail human being in need of a savior, in need of God's wisdom. Political constraints, secondly, can deny the full possibility of rational policy analysis. And this is where we begin to see why government regulations themselves are often irrational and a poor fit to the problem and the solution. So that's just the reality of the political world. There's a lot of constraints, there's a lot of different actors and so forth. We'll discuss that in a second. 
Elitism can further undermine holistic analysis, including spiritual components. If, you're, if you consider yourself to be an expert and you're impressed with your expertise and you believe that people that don't have your expertise are therefore dumb uh, and that they, they shouldn't have any say, you might fall prey to pride and arrogance and therefore elitism and therefore narrow-minded solutions. If you're coming at a problem with a secular-only perspective, you're going to therefore overlook entirely the spiritual dimension of most political problems. And that's going to lead to an impartial, you know, an incomplete solution, often an entirely misguided solution. Because if you don't define the problem properly in the policy analysis process, it doesn't matter how good your solutions are, they're going to be off base. They're not going to be able to solve the problem because you haven't properly defined the problem from the get-go. Here's some more pitfalls of progressivism. Something that the progressive spirit never really would have accounted for because their assumption is that you get the elites, you get the experts in government, they're going to be impartial, they're going to make all the right solutions. Bureaucracy creep. In other words, the more you define the problem, the more you try to solve the problem, the agency created to regulate and implement the solution is going to be more concerned about its own survival uh, and its own authority, so it's going to grow. And that's what happens with your typical government bureaucracy. It seems to grow over time. It's related to agency survival. Agency survival comes at the expense of constituent care. We're more concerned about making the next budget, getting approval from Congress or what have you, the mayor, the governor, for, the, for that next budget. Um, and so that becomes more important than constituent care. And technically that even gets worse as you get more actors, more agencies involved in, quote, solving the problem. Then you get top-down solutions, again, in the name of centralization. You're doing centralization in the name of, of getting a, a much more comprehensive solution to the problem, but as a result, you're more top-down, you're more hierarchical. Thus, your solutions are out of touch with lo the local, contact, local context and the personal and spiritual dimensions of the problem. And that's why a lot of times you get, you get you know, federal solutions that do not work in a local context, right? Because they're too rigid. By default, regulations are too rigid and they're often, they, they, they miss local, personal context. That's why typically we as conservatives in the Helm School of Government recommend local solutions to local problems, to say nothing of how that ensures more freedom for you and I. And then you have this problem, which is anything but rational, but it is just the reality of government. Mismanagement of funding. Spending other people's money on other people's problems. You know, when you spend your money on yourself, you're very particular in how you spend it. Even if you waste it, you're very particular in how you waste your own money on yourself, you know exactly what you're doing, typically. You take a bureaucrat that doesn't know you and doesn't know the person they're trying to help, all of a sudden that money and, and fiscal restraint becomes a lot less important. Then you take a bunch of lawmakers to making a budget on a yearly basis or allegedly, supposedly suppose, you know, having to do that, it hasn't been happening lately, and you don't have disciplined spending. It is a direct refutation of the alleged elitism and rationalism and professionalism that the progressive movement was founded upon. Lawmakers and bureaucrats do not spend money well. They waste it on pork, on earmarks, all these things, and, and agencies waste the money as well in the name of preserving the budget as for each year. I'm not anti-government. Clearly the Bible is an anti-government, but we have to take these realities into account, and often they are not. So what does the Bible say about these things? And I think it's important to, to look not only at the Bible, but also just some of some biblical philosophical traditions. The consolation of conservatism from Edmund Burke is that, you know, Edmund Burke, the father of conservatism, said, beware the daydreams of intellectuals. In other words, just because an idea sounds good up here, you get a smart person that can articulate an idea, 
and this idea for what government should do to solve all our problems. It may make sense in, fairy, in the fairy, fairy world, but it may not make sense in the real world. And so it's important to note that distinction. And what Edmund Burke says is that often the common sense of common people trumps the schemes of the elites. Progressivism said that the problem with most policy solutions back in the day was that you had a bunch of local people that didn't, the local yokels who didn't know what they were doing. They were too parochial, they were too unprofessional, they didn't know their stuff. And certainly that was a problem that existed, we have to be aware of that. But Edmund Burke reminds us that many times there is a thing called common sense that people, just the real life experiences of day-to-day -day living, they have much more context sometimes than the intellectuals do up at Capitol Hill, and so their solutions are much more in touch with reality. That's important to remember. And I think this is where we start transitioning to biblical truth. The bright ideas of the sages should be in line with the wisdom of the ages. Some of those ideas, what is the wisdom of the ages in terms of a biblical perspective? We're think, talking about things like inalienable rights, uh, natural law, the, the inherent need to limit government. Even if government could generate the solution, doesn't mean it should if it comes at the expense of your rights and my rights and freedoms, right? We have to have a balanced approach to this. Elitism often means arrogance. It often means abuse of power. We have to guard against that. Now, if we go to the book of Proverbs in the Bible, we see some major themes that are relevant for any approach to policy analysis and regulation. In Scripture, wisdom and justice are intertwined in Proverbs, meaning that it's not just about having head smarts. It's about being a good person. It's about caring for people. It's about ensuring true justice. In the Bible, justice is more than just coming from a judge. It's a, a holistic approach to life. Everything is good and just and fair. People are cared for. There is peace. There is uh, fairness across the board. People, the poor are cared for. The individual rights are protected. This is a holistic approach. We have to remember that. We can't have a narrow vision of justice where it's just redistribution of wealth, where it's just taking from one group and giving to another. There may be a time and place for that. Certainly the Bible calls you and I to share our wealth with those that don't have it. Certainly we're called to fight against oppressive structures in society, but wisdom certainly is based upon humility. You don't get to, to pat yourself on the back for being an elitist. You don't get to pat yourself on the back for having a degree. You're here to serve people and to care for them, and sometimes government misses that fact because they get out of touch with the people whose money they are spending. And that's really sad, but it happens all the time. So this, this presentation is not meant to be a total rebuke of progressivism because wisdom in scripture, like progressivism, encourages a rational and an, and an intelligent approach to policy analysis and regulation. But wisdom often, unlike progressivism, takes into account human arrogance and depravity and therefore provides some checks and balances. If you have a naive assumption that a government official who has his PhD is going to be rational and elite and, and, and objective, I think that's not a biblical truth. I don't think that's a biblical reality. And then we have one more thought from Scripture, this idea of covenant, where you and I are we're all in this together. We're accountable to one another. If God would make a covenant with us, ultimately fulfilling that covenantal relationship with, through Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross, if he would do that for us, if he would say, come into a covenant with me, you make the choice to, to enter into a relationship with me, and, and I'll bless you, and I'll be accountable to you, and I will fulfill my end of the bargain. I'll go beyond the letter of the law to fulfill my promise to you. And ultimately, that's what he did. Jesus Christ ultimately went the extra mile, didn't he? In, in taking the sacrifice of sin that we should have had, the punishment of sin which we should have had, he took that on the cross. He became the punishment. He became our sacrifice. If he would do that for us, then what should we do for one another in terms of a covenant? 
The biblical notion of covenant is related to the biblical notion of justice. We all are accountable to one another. No one should have all the power. No one should hoard power and be the elite. We need one another. As a result, we have this idea, you read guys like Abraham Kuyper, known as sphere sovereignty, which is that power is shared among various entities in society, the federal government, the state governments, the local governments, churches, businesses, communities, nonprofits, you and I, families. We all have a piece to play in, in problems that need to be solved in our communities. And so we're all involved in that. And you don't have, therefore, a federal government that's top-heavy, giving all these regulations and mandates and telling states and localities what to do. And you don't have a view to solving social problems that ignores the role of the church, the role of faith-based nonprofits, and so forth. The covenantal approach encourages personal accountability, which conservatives love, and it encourages social justice. Well, how do you balance those two? You balance them through having not just the federal government involved, but you have churches, localities, faith-based nonprofits that can who have the context of how to care for people, also know those people well enough to, to hold them accountable in a loving way. Case in point, uh, my church is involved with a, a network of churches in my area. And they know people that really genuinely need help from churches, and those people that are just gaming the system and trying to take, advan take advantage of the kindness of churches with respect to financial resources. That's cooperation, that's a localized solution to caring for the poor. And finally, a covenantal biblical approach to policy analysis and regulation acknowledges the inherent spiritual dimension of most problems. Government regulations are inherently anti-spiritual because they don't typically allow for a spiritual component because that's a, an alleged violation of the separation of church and state. But we know that if we're going to really solve problems in society, we have to allow for that spiritual problem. It's not just a spiritual problem, right? It's not just the result of a, a lack of uh, personal choices. If you read scripture, what causes poverty? Yes, it points to uh, wastefulness and a lack of personal responsibility, but it points to a lot of other things too, like oppressive rulers and oppressive structures that take advantage of the widowless, the widows and the fatherless. So we have to be aware of that too. And it blends those together. And I think that's very important as we talk about government regulation in this class. Thank you for your time.